Hi, it's Raghu with Mind Rolling, an old friend and who I miss so much, Bob Thurman. Bob, welcome to Mind Rolling. Oh, thank you, Raghu. Miss you too. Um, Out there in uh, Ojai, sunny Ojai. Here we are in Woodstock, yeah. in the Wood- Hudson Valley rainforest. Yes, you have rain. We haven't seen rain in about 14 years, Bob. I know. Uh, so it's really I, I bad pray. Out here. They, they should really hire some, uh, you know, uh, uh, Cherokees and uh, Navajo and Hopi and come out and Tibetans and do some rain dances. Yeah. They never they think should, of that. Yeah. They should also um, re-educate uh, all of us white people here who uh, uh, took over this country and created what we seem to have now, which is a, a very apocalyptic uh, environment. That's right. Absolutely. Right? We need we need their wisdom, don't we? Absolutely. There's a, lov- a lovely Sarah Johnson uh, from the Navajo, but who is a Stanford graduate or student, graduate student. Mm. And uh, she says that uh, the deep ecologists think that uh, Mother Earth wouldn't miss us. I actually, I call us pink people rather than white people. <laughs> I don't see any white faces except for corpses. I call yeah. us pink, but anyway, that uh, they, they would they, they, they those deep ecologists say that Mother Earth wouldn't miss us, but she says they would miss the native people because the native people used to take care of things, right? And and Mother yeah. Earth would miss them. Yeah, <laughs> I like oh, that. Boy, oh boy, I know huh? she says it in a nice way. Yeah, she knows that we could we are, we were actually born here and we didn't come in with the first wave of genocide committers. And uh, we could change our ways, and we are some of us. And so, we we can be native people if we make an effort. Yes, yes, yes. We're uh, yeah, we're experimenting more in that with the podcast network to have uh, more representation and diversity to That's hear right. all of those voices and be able to follow some of the right some of this right. wisdom, amazing wisdom. So, well, have you been? In this, I mean, we really haven't talked much at all in over probably a year or something. And uh, really? how have you been navigating uh, this uh, world of ours? Yeah, sure. We're fine. Well, we've been home a lot. The COVID has given a nice t- opportunity, as tragic as, as it has been for many and as it fundamentally is, it has given us a nice opportunity to be on a long retreat. Mm. and focus on what is real. And uh, I'm very happy to have put out this Wisdom is Bliss book Yeah. at a time when everyone is sort of feeling a little something, but maybe re-blooming into some new thing. And I really can't believe it. Look at the amazing surprises that we are having. I was not in favor of Joe Biden initially, I was more Bernie kind of uh, on the Bernie level, except for his use of the slogan of socialism. But mm. otherwise, I was really for Bernie. But what Joe Biden has really transformed himself. He used to vote for, he voted for invasion of Iraq. He voted for prison system. He voted for a lot of dumb things when he was senator. Mm. And, uh, and now he's born again. He's come to Jesus. He's come to Buddha. He's come to Krishna. He's <laughs> really... He's got uh, Kamala right up there with him. Yeah, but he's he's, also being vilified as well well in so many different ways. The loonies, the last thing the loonies want to do is to have someone try to run the place competently. 
you know, someone who is not as miserable as them. You know, and they, all they do when they get in charge is they just make everybody miserable because they are so miserable. That's a sad thing, you know. Yeah, but I take great heart from that because our group, you know, the happy people, the reason this happened is we got complacent and we sat back and half of us didn't bother to vote and we didn't go out, we didn't make a donation, we didn't do this, didn't do that. And then the, the, the guys who are miserable, but who think if they have power, they'll be happy. And they rushed and got all the power. And then they did a lot of dumb things and wrecked a lot of, making a lot of mess. And they're continuing to do it. And, uh, and they're mad when somebody comes up and decides to, hey, let's have a Green New Deal. Yeah. Let's like adapt to reality instead of living in a, in a hamburger and Super Bowl fantasy, you know. Hamburger, yeah, right. Chevrolets, you know, uh, like weird, uh, weird pharmaceuticals and and um, and Super Bowl. That's it. Yeah. And French fries uh, and talk about reality. So uh, the first I'm got you got me on the first line. So Bob has this wonderful book, as he just mentioned, Wisdom is Bliss. And uh, I got you, you got me on the first chapter one, which is the Buddha uh -huh. path. This book is about getting real okay? <laughs> while having right. fun along the way. This is not your typical, archetypical uh, Buddhist uh, uh, book uh, to, to uh, suggest, ooh, wow, this could be fun. This isn't just this dry Buddhist rhetoric. This could be fun if you integrate some of this in your life. But I'll right. tell you a story of our good friend Sharon Salzberg. Uh, one time at the, one of those retreats in, in Maui, I was doing a thing with her and Duncan Trussell. You remember our friend Duncan? Yes, sure, Duncan, yeah. Uh, and uh, he, was, he said, look, Sharon, let's get down to it. What do you do when you get out of bed in the morning? What do you do? What's your practice? Right. right? So she said, well, I have to get out and brush my teeth and then... I sit and get real. Oh, good. <laughs> that was the thing. Sit and get real. Just be uh, present in, in, in a way good. that allows for ev all possibilities. It was just right. a wonderful thing. And so, right. yeah, this is very much of what you're talking uh, about. That's it. Yeah. Well, I say I don't want to make it. A, I'm not into making it. A, it's not a Buddhist book. Wisdom is bliss. It's a Buddhist book. <laughs> I'm into Buddhism, not Buddhism in this case, because I'm following Dalai Lama who doesn't want to convert anybody. You know, I really miss Ramdas because remember where he was, he asked me, what can he do that all his friends were Buddhists and he was a Hindu and he had a soul and he wanted to, you know, he had an atma, you know, a soul, and he mm -hmm. wanted to go. And they said he couldn't have one. <laughs> and remember, and then I told him, <laughs> I, I didn't appeal to Buddha. I told, I, I, to an obvious Buddha, I appealed to Yogi Berra. <laughs> remember that? I said, yeah, Ramdas, yeah. relax. Follow Yogi Berra's teaching, Dharma teaching. When you come to a fork in the road, Take it. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And he loved that. He was talking about Ryogi Bear the rest of the time. Yeah. And uh, I wish, but I wish he was still here because I'm more and more into this because His Holiness has heightened the emphasis. I mean, the Dalai Lama, you know, my guru of the, of the nowadays, 
he's kind of my buddy too, but he's also really my guru in those contexts. Mm. But he's flexible, so we can also still be buddies. That's what's so nice about it. But mm. anyway, he uh, is, in, is really coming out more on what he calls his fourth aim in life. Oh. And his fourth aim in life, you know, he has the three names that he always just talks a lot about. And now the fourth one he's really emphasizing, which is bringing India's own inter-science back into its full cage, you know, full bore uh, function, which involves retrieving the Buddhist side of it. You know, the great Nalanda, the great Buddhist universities that were the great universities of the world, actually, for 1,200 years. And then they were knocked out by various invasions into India where the invaders mm. burned them and so on. And then India sort of had the Hindu side left, which is full of the same things. But they, they, a few things that the Buddhists were adding, which were integral to Indian classical civilization. And so his idea is not bring it back as Buddhism, but bring it back as India's own inner science, spiritual science, and adding, you know, like complementing and heightening those elements that really come from, you know, in historical terms, the Shramana tradition, not the Brahmana or the Vedic tradition, but the Shramana. Mm. And that means the sort of yogis, the yogi side, you know, because Vedas were kind of not so much the yogi side, you know, they what were the kings. What does Shramana translate as, Bo? Uh, Shramana? Well, that's an Indian word. Shramana means, well, I translate it as vacationer. <laughs> and, but it means a seeker, and most people translate it as ascetic. Because ah. they're the people who give up the household life, yeah. you know, and who go into, like, the swamis, you know, the Hindu. Hinduism didn't have lifelong monks until the Buddhist side was driven out, and then they had to reproduce that. But other than that, when you're a student, you can be celibate. But when you get older, you have to have a household. Then again, when you retreat to Vanaprastha, what they call, you know, you go back to the ashram, then you become a shramana again, and you're sort of more or less celibate again. You know, you're a yogi. Mm, yeah. And then finally, sannyasin, you completely abandon every kind of household aspect. Mm. And, uh, and that was their four aims of life. When Buddhism was adding the institution where you dropped out, you know, turn on, tuned in, and dropped out to really develop your spiritual side professionally, 100% woman as well as man, which was not so much allowed in the householder side. You know, you had to do your duty there, pay your taxes, serve in the military, serve in the priesthood, or whatever it is. So, so this is the fourth aim, and I'm really into it. You know, mm. yoga, especially in the con terms of yoga, because the yoga was always what attracted me to India and, uh, the, and the Buddhist yoga of mind, the yoga of the emotions. It's really very important. Bhakti is a yoga of the emotions and the Bodhisattva path is the yoga of the emotions and they complement each other magnificently. Mm. And I wish I could, as I said, if Ramdas was here, he would love the synthesis of this. You know, as he said, all his friends are Buddhists. Because they're more doing the yoga, but then he said he wants to be a Hindu. No problem. Because <laughs> it's Indian spiritual science is the thing. Mm. Is what it is. The mm. ist part, this ist and that is, mm. is less relevant. You know. Have you had? I, I have not heard him publicly uh, say this. Anything like this? Has this been in some of his public addresses? You know, doing the the. Zoom he's all in it. Yeah. Oh yeah, all the time. Yeah, nowadays all the time. Really? Because uh, you know his first three are really. Remember, the first one is. As a human being, 
He wants transformative common human values. That's his whole religion of kindness idea instead of this and that religion. Because he doesn't believe at this time in history, we should be exclusivists and say, oh, I'm going to convert you from Judaism to Hinduism, or I'm mm. going to convert you back to Judaism, or I'm going to go ahead, you, everybody should be a Christian, or everybody should be a Buddhist. He's against that. You know, he's into everybody should stick with grandma's religion, but they're free to learn yogas from all of the education systems that the different spiritualities have elaborated in all different cultures and enrich their understanding of grandma's religion, but then sit there in the pew or in the synagogue or in the thing and hold hands with granny and don't upset granny <laughs> by saying, granny, I'm sorry, I'm a Buddhist. I'm not going in that house with you. Mm. You know, that, we don't need to do that. You know, mm, that's, that oh, makes granny God. unhappy. And then also mm. the sort of bosses of the religious traditions, you know, the big shots, the, the, the popes, the head, head guys, then they get into, and the, and, the, and the cardinals and the institutions, they get into competing for market share. And then yeah, that leads yeah. to lethal jihads and crusades and, you know, modern versions, you know, on, online or something, you know, and that's yeah. no good. So yeah. he feels, he, he sold three popes, he's shared this with three popes who like, in conversation with him, they agree, but then when, they, when they get back out there, they have to do their gig to yeah, expand yeah. their institution, you know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they tend to fall into it, right? And okay. so that he wants he wants everyone to stop doing that sort of thing, yeah. and instead try to go to the heart of everywhere and find everything, you know, find the find it in Jesus's feelings, in Jesus's yoga of, you know, good Rabbi Jesus with his great Rabbi teaching of altruism and ethicality and so forth. Turn the other cheek. And uh, and Buddha's thing and Lao Tzu's thing and Krishna's thing, whoever whatever it is, and Hanuman. Mm. You mustn't forget <laughs> Hanuman, our, our, monkey, all... our monkey teacher. Yes, you know? yes. This all reminds me. Uh, actually, you know, you're talking about His Holiness talking about. You know, this isn't a matter of, of of converting to another religion whatsoever, and you should not uh, do something like that. Of course, I came home from India after being with Neem Karoli Baba with Maharaji and given me the name, and Mom, my name is no longer Mitchell, it's Ragu. Get it? <laughs> My mother was a Marxist, okay? At the t she was like, are you? It was really terrible what I did. Terrible what I did. I know. But fortunately, uh, and then, oh, many years later, many years later, I was with a man named Casey Tuari that maybe Krishnas has, has mentioned to you in, in, when you've been together. He was one of our mentors. He, he, it was Krishnas, he called him his uh, Indian father because he spent more time with him than any of us. Anyhow, I was with him at one time. I took my mother to India and she wanted to go to India and she just had this delightful time. This was after Maharaji's time. And uh, we went on a little bit of a yatra with this man who was a knocked out yogi who in the guise of a school teacher, we're actually just doing a movie, a, a yes, documentary yes. about him. Anyhow, he says to me, you know, um, I wonder if, you know, you're, you're Jewish and you're from the Jewish uh, religion and, uh, you know, you do not give up your religion and take on another religion. This is not the reality. So he said, would you mind though? I'd love to hear a prayer. Uh, and my mother and I thought, hmm, I wonder, oh, I know one. And we sang, 
this prayer, Ain Keloheinu. There's nothing but the one. Nothing but Ain Kadone. There's nothing oh, but the yeah. one. He oh, went yeah. into Samadhi, sitting there oh. in front of us. He just went out on it, which he used to do all the time. He, he Oh, that's he, great. Yeah. And then my mother said, Oh my God, what's what happened to him? <laughs> you know, he's not breathing. <laughs> and uh, it was a big lesson about that though. So I mean, it's so beautiful. great his holiness that's is beautiful. doing this. You know, these Tibetan lamas come here and then they make Dharma centers and then people are into like they want to be Buddhist with the Lama, you know. And yeah. the Dalai Lama comes and says, No, I don't want you to I never he even said recently in a movie he made about his conversations with David Bohm who also used to talk with Krishnamurti a lot, you know. And he said in, the, in the, his interviews for that film, he said, I just want everyone to know that in my entire life, I have never given Dharma teaching with the motive of making people into Buddhists. Right. He said, that's never been my thing. And he says, because I, I, I don't want con mutual competition and conversion. I want everyone to share their riches with everyone else mm, and people mm. to use it within their own cultural matrix. And of course, and then he, in that kind of uh, uh, lecture, he doesn't go into saying, but of, of course, you know, you will then moderate any kind of elements of exclusivism, which wouldn't even enable you to study anything else, you know, like the, right. the very right. exclusivist versions of the different religions. But they are not the only versions of those religions, you know, the, the crusade mentality and the jihad mentality and the everybody's got to be a Buddhist mentality is only certain types of uh, interpretations. And the, and the really deeper ones are learn how to live, how to be real, and what is reality mm. and that and that also brings in he makes a big thing about he doesn't want to convert people away from secularism either if that's their thing to observe nature not be dogmatic not have blind faith in anything but only what's sensible and reasonable he's all for that and that they, that they can keep that situation and then observe their mind and be mindful, and they get and use these tools to live well with in whatever cultural feeling they have, you know. Mm, so yeah. that, I really yeah. like that, and yeah, that's why absolutely. I renamed the Four Noble Truths in in letting setting forth the Eightfold Path, the, the educational curriculum of mm. how to live well that Buddha left us. And uh, but I do it in terms of the four friendly. Fun yeah. facts. <laughs> yeah, I, I just was noting that, and I was going to say that's really what this book is about. It gives the um, the possibility of of anyone getting uh, information that can help on a day to day basis without going through the four noble truths and the eightfold path, and oh, I got to be a right. Buddhist and all that, all kinds of arcane. Uh, That's right, and, and so, even the name, because you know the early guys, the, the word satya can certainly mean truth, but it also means the reality, and mm -hmm. it therefore also means effect, and uh, just something that's factual, and um, and uh, so you know it was translated as truth by people because they said, oh, Buddhism is a religion, so therefore they have to have something, they have a credo. And, you know, they recite the credo. Oh, yeah, I believe in suffering and I believe in nirvana and I believe in causes. I believe in the path. But that's but but Buddha never asked for belief in any of those things. He asked to, to notice the suffering and don't freak out about it because it's it happens when you don't know what you're doing. You're going to mm. bump into things and suffer. Mm. Then well, there has a cause. 
then his real discovery, which everybody does not emphasize because it seems so outlandish and preposterous to people, is that actually when you understand life, it's a gas. It's nirvana. <laughs> it's fabulous. It's terrific. Everything, not just some far off place, some elsewhere is nirvana. It's nirvana when you're when you're really, you know, aware of what's around you and you're really in love with it. You realize, you know, the beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and then you see the beauty in life, and you—that's yeah. the—that's nirvana. Beauty in life yeah. is nirvana. But the, and this that's is... the real, and that's the realer reality. That, and that's why I. I put the thing, wisdom is bliss, because yeah, wisdom yeah. is what you know that nirvana yeah. about. You know? You're sure it's not ignorance? It's, didn't what? they used to teach us ignorance is bliss? <laughs> yeah, no, that's what, that's what the people say who are scared of it. And, and uh, the other thing is Eastern cultures too, all of the world's cultures of the last few thousand years, they take to the common man you know, and woman, they want to frighten them. And they frighten them that because they want them to feel they need the king or the president or the legislature or whatever it is. And they need the high priest and they need the dogma. And then they need the outside consultant, namely God, personified as sort of somebody a little bigger than the king. <laughs> you know, but basically yeah. just anthropomorphized into, made into like somebody standing behind the president or the king or whatever it is so mm. so that you can depend on them. And mm. so that's why they try to scare you. Whereas Buddha, as a rebel, he wanted you not to be scared because you don't do that well when you're scared. You know, you don't open up to see the beauty of things when you're scared. You hide. And you're too scared. You think mm. you get hurt if you open up, you know. Yeah, so what's great here, these four friendly facts. Yes. The four friendly facts. <laughs> so uh, it's a model for a, a just like you would go to a doctor when you exactly. have something wrong and you get exactly. a diagnosis. So I love here. So the first uh, friendly fact is a recognition of the symptom. We all have recognition of the symptom. The yeah. diagnosis of its cause, no problem. The prognosis right. that gives us a likelihood and the nature of the cure. We're all yes. looking for that. Yes. And right. then the therapeutic method that counters the malignant effects of the cause. Uh, yeah. Maybe break that out a little further into a, uh, the way that yeah. we actually can work with ourselves that's to right. Bring well, this the first to sure. Well, well, the first fun fact, and it is fun to acknowledge that blundering around, you know, feeling separate from everybody, and continually finding conflict and friction and struggle, is bound to be stressful. So it's kind of nice to be told. I I I had a conversation with it about about it with with Sharon. And she oh. always mentions how relieved she was when she heard that, well, gee whiz, all this suffering I've had in my childhood and growing up, that's normal because I didn't really know what was happening and it was just all going on around me. And so I shouldn't feel that it's especially me and I'm bad and something, you know, I'm being punished mm -hmm. for some terrible thing, yeah. which I didn't do. So she, she was, that was a fun fact then, although it sounds kind of contradictory to say it's a fun fact to realize that normal staggering around and bumping into things is going to be suffering. What's fun about it is then you don't feel that you did it bad. It's just the way it is. And then when you feel, you find out that the cause is because you were approaching life based on some misapprehension about your own role in it, and you felt you were the center of it, and then you kept wondering, 
how come other people don't think I'm the center? <laughs> In fact, on top of they don't think I am. They think they are. That's ridiculous. You know, and then you realize that really wasn't a really proper way to go about it. So that's the cause. And then, gee whiz, I can still be here and be totally healthy, totally with it, interact way better when I realize that it is just great, you know, itself. And I can relax having to be the center because it's the, the whole thing is the center and they're all the center too. And it's great. And we can really relate without friction and have a good time. But to really make sure I'm doing that, I need to educate myself about how to interact with them better and what not, how not to be harmful, how to be helpful. And, and I have to have a view about our, our simple openness, how it's necessary to not be dogmatic and not always insist on being right and be, and be open to what they think, see their perspective, always be open to the bigger picture. And that's the view and then have a motive of opening endlessly and infinitely and then being ethical and not harmful and then developing meditative ability to control my emotions by being more aware of how they arise so I don't send out negative vibes and have bad emotions and have them make me do bad things and then finally really focus on the nature of the deepest level of reality what it really is and discover and see nirvana everywhere see it right there in every hair of Raghu's nice white mustache. <laughs> That's all nirvana, an uh, elegant mustache. Uh, I'm so jealous because I, I'm tired of shaving and I'm old and retired, but my mustache is so scraggly I can't take it. <laughs> I have really a defect. I have a lot of head hair. But yes, my face hair just be happy. We should both just sucked. be happy about the head of hair that we still have. I, know, right? I okay. am. That's and, all there is to it. And Nirvana but, is in a good head of hair. You know? Yeah, exactly. It's on every <laughs> follicle, you know, if you really notice it. And in case you don't, it's in that beautiful smooth dome, you know, that like mm. Kojak, the detective, used yeah. to <laughs> yeah, no on TV. <laughs> and Yul Brynner, remember Yul Brynner yes, with his yes. cool, cool dome. So that can be very elegant and nirvanic as well, you know, if that happens yeah. to be your hair too. You know? How about talking about, we need to talk a little about, you, you, you uh, mentioned it briefly, but motivation yes. is a big thing. And, I, you know, the motivation to uh, stop being so self, is yourself as the center of the universe and when that uh, when that gets attacked by virtue of uh, being so uh, so much full of ignorance, right, right? Then it becomes a real problem. So right. motivation. Around- so well, the thing there that that's a beautiful thing. You know, psychologists have a really you know academic psychologists in the West have a really dumb thing where they claim there's no such thing as altruism. Because they've observed that someone who cultivates altruism and, and thinks that way and lives that way and becomes more and more that way, they're doing it because they get great satisfaction out of it. So therefore, there's a selfish motive in altruism. So it's mm. not real altruism. Ah. They, they get into the... Whereas Shantideva or any of the Buddhist psychologists and Buddha, who was a psychologist, therapist, he noted, he noted that as a bonus. That is to say, you learn that when you open up a little and you feel what other people feel and then inter interact smoothly and lovingly and pleasantly with that, 
It makes you happy. When you act to just make yourself happy, you're always dissatisfied because you don't have enough. So you're always evaluating what you got. What do I get out of it all? And it's never enough, so you're never happy. So, so the way of uh, the method has to do with looking at the sort of slightly paradoxical nature of life. The, the less you worry about yourself being in the center, the better you feel. So then you're actually succeeding in the original selfish idea of having it all when you really want others to have it all. So it, it, it mutually it work really well. And when you learn that, then you get a strong motive. You get a self-interest in order to, to, to fulfill others' interests and to be yeah. altruistic. And as the Dalai Lama likes to say beautifully, he says, if you want to be successfully selfish and get what you want, be altruistic. Because when you're altruistic, the first person who gets happy is you. <laughs> you may not be that skillful with your altruism, and you may not help the other person as much as you wanted to. But by trying, you're going to feel better. Yeah, and but, so and, and and so that that is that's a fail safe. You know, I love yeah, it. It's just yeah. so cool. And the but uh, I think that motivation comes from the experiential nature of actually extending yourself outside of your box and then absolutely in that moment there's a realization and uh and your worry about yourself as soon as you just you're walking across the street somebody needs help and you go to help them before that you were thinking oh my god today is just horrible my wife is this and I my know. kids don't go bother <laughs> and then know. suddenly you do that action because it's yeah. in front of you you have no choice That's and right. you do the action and then you realize in the doing of the action, your stuff, quote unquote, just absolutely dissipated That's into right. nothing. It's bracketed. <laughs> That's yeah. right. It's really that is absolutely right. So and just taking so that's that a systematic. On. The point is that's a systematic method, you know, because we're badly educated in our society, and I mean Harvard, Exeter, whatever you want, expensive, fancy schools, mm. but none of them educate us to cultivate positive emotions and to diminish and to uncultivate and unlearn negative habits. And they, they, they act like that's sort of your mom's supposed to help you do that or your psychotherapist or whatever life experience will help you do that. And we just teach you facts and skills and how to go around and manipulate things in the world. And that's, and you know, as Dalai Lama said, when he got honorary degree doctorate at Columbia, doctor of humanity, you know, he got that. And he said, great, I love it. Education is the most important thing in the world. He said, we cannot have any decent society anywhere without education. He said, but I worry about your education, he said to the trustees and faculty of Columbia. He says, because you focus only on educating the clever brain and you don't educate the good heart. And a clever brain without a good heart could actually be dangerous for others because the mm. person would be manipulative and whatever, mm -hmm. using cleverness to manipulate and manipulate others. And also dangerous for the person because when they live like that, they, they are going to get more and more unhappy themselves. They might get more money, they might get more status and power, but then they'll feel more isolated from other people. Other people won't like them. They'll feel that, they'll get more closed off, and they're going to have an unhappy life. Mm. And then they'll be worse. So he said, please think about trying to cultivate how to educate the heart as part of academic mission. 
And it just, you know, they all nodded and looking very benign and, oh, he's so great telling us this. And yes, of course, we should do that. And we should be not, you know, the dorm master should go and like take a look at the people in the dorm. (laughs) But no idea that there's a course in that, like how to develop a better mental concentration, how to become aware of your own emotional narratives that are in your mind, which is what mindfulness does. Yeah. You know, mindfulness doesn't make you into a geek. Uh, like a Hindu geek or a Buddhist geek or a Sufi geek or a Kabbalah geek, it mindfulness makes you a better manager of your own inner emotions because it develops more inner mental freedom. Yeah. And you don't have to just jump on every impulse that you have because you, you see how the, where the impulse, impulse comes from. It's like learning to play a pinball machine. You know, you know how to flip which lever, you know? And yeah. as I would say, mindfulness is like getting a clicker for the different channels in your mind. So you can turn off the commercials and you can turn off the, the weird programs that are making you crazy, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and listen to more of the nice ones that are helping you, that are, that are tracing your videos. So, so that's the thing. So, so, so you know, George Soros, I, I, who, who I adore, who's a hero of mine, Mm. He made a beautiful university in Hungary, which has been yes, ruined by Putin's pal, who is the the new dictator in Colombia, unfortunately. And um, but, so then he wants to make one in the West, and he gave a billion dollars or pledged a billion dollars, and I don't know exactly how. It, I haven't managed to catch up with it. I think he gave it to Bard College, oh. or he was channeling it through Bard, which is a very innovative, and they do a lot of good. Yeah, they have things like well. go and teach in a prison as part mm. of your study. Right. Do you know what I mean? And uh, and teach yoga to some prisoner. They have things like that, and uh, they're really brilliant. So, but I don't know what the, how they're going to make a w- new world university out mm. of it. But we have to do that. You know? Yeah. The, Bo- uh, the Buddhists in India had Nalanda University, which had a core curriculum that involved how to train your mind, mm. not just your brain to, to be manipulative. You know? So one of the things, Bob, here that, uh, uh, again, this for many people is a bit of an arcane concept and you do get into it and maybe just get it down dirty, which is the <laughs> you say the first step towards a realistic worldview is one taken to accept the reality of causation. Understanding both cause and effect is relative and temporarily infinite. Right. Ultimately beginningless and endless, we then can confront the causal world more creatively, knowing we are both part of it and potentially all of it. We can face its immensity and dedicate our potential infinite energy towards making the world even better for everyone. So, yeah, cause, let's... Did you yeah, write that? Okay. <laughs> You read it. I like the way you read it. Uh, (laughs) Sounds better than what I think about. So uh, I forget what I write. That's really good. Well, you know, there are two things in that. In other words, I don't think the causality is so arcane because because actually science, that's the basis of science, is to look into causes. Because by looking into the causes of a bad thing, and a doctor does that too, they, that, that's when they prevent that bad thing from happening or they ameliorate this condition of the bad thing. So causation investigation is a thing. You know, uh, there was a president at, at Amherst College who was a classicist, and he thinks that science is only Western. You know, he, he did, at least before we talked. And I don't know if he really changed his mind after we did. And he has a story about a Galen, a Greek, the Greek doctor, 
who analyzed, uh, you know, a ship came in filled with corpses, floated into the harbor in Rhodes, and Rhodes, uh, and everybody had died in the ship. And then the people started getting sick in the town. And then people ran to the temple of Athena to get the, to stop the plague. And he said, no, we don't go to the temple of Athena. We see the causes, the dead bodies. They had some infestation. And we burn the ship and the dead bodies, and then we'll be okay. So he, he considered that the birth of the Western interest in causation rather than the gods causing things. And, uh, and so that's, that's pretty normal. But I agree when, you, when I say that the chicken and egg problem is solved by just letting it go, letting that chicken and that egg just go back. And it, who's the first chicken and who's the first egg? Don't worry about it. It doesn't, what you worry about is which egg am I in, which chicken, and which, which next egg is going to happen. And you just keep work on it in your own sphere. So that's the easy part. The harder part is to sort of open up to the boundarylessness of life, you know, and then realize that what you do now becomes the cause of endless consequence. And so therefore you should, you should, it gives more weight on making good decision, even in tiny baby steps level, rather than a bad one. Do you know what I mean? Like if you're gonna, if you're gonna get mad, well, just do it in a less violent manner and for shorter time <laughs> and with less emotion, you know, than just going berserk, you know? Yeah. And so just baby step, try to interfere with habitual causations mm. and make them more consciously designed to be better. And so that's- I like that. That's baby steps to interfere with the habitual causation in your life. That's right. Okay? That's, that's right. phenomenal. So that part is straight, but I agree that then, and then the future, although I have a new, I have a new thing that I've only discovered just now. I learned, see, I didn't have it in mind reading mm. that because I'm always worried about people being sucked in to the fake thing that materialism teaches, which is that you have no soul and no mind. And they even think that Buddha doesn't allow you to have a soul, which is not correct, actually. It's a misinterpretation of Buddhism by materialists, translators. Whereas really you have a soul in the sense that you have a super subtle mental continuum. It isn't a fixed thing like a barcode that never changes, which is what Buddha meant when he said no soul like that. But you have a soul that is a continuum of this very subtle level that goes out of the brain and out of the body and looks for another one. And, and that's and that's what's called a soul, you know, because because mm. uh, yeah. Buddha is definitely into the the infinite continuity of life. I remember but, when you told that Bob to uh, when we were in uh, Maui at one of these retreats, and yes, he was because he always, whenever he would say soul, just the word, he there's always our Buddhist friends up on stage. And you can't sort have of that. slyly over there. Sorry, I know they're rolling and their then eyes. you came in and you gave <laughs> this wonderful little bit of a dissertation on the reality uh, that That's as you right. just did. Heck That's, yes. uh, yeah. Because otherwise you get into there's no future life. And yeah. that puts you in the materialist bag, which there were some in Buddha's time, and they were utterly unethical. They theoretically, anyway, probably some of them were ethical around town, but they they were unethical as far as there any reason to be ethical, because finally there's no consequence for everything when your mind is nothing, you know. And so Buddha would never agree with that. And so so anyway, yes, I was so happy to be able to offer that to Ramdas and to others who have taken Buddhism as wrongly confirming the materialist thing. But anyway, what I was trying to say is a more simple thing. And what I discovered is, you know, the materialists, however, do, and the existentialists, 
do convince themselves that they're very brave in accepting being nothing. They think mm. that's a real achievement to accept, okay, I can be nothing. I can let it all go and be nothing. And in a way, that is kind of cool. But, but on the other hand, I then realized, well, why do people fear being nothing, at least mentally, when they think about it? Because actually, when they're having their teeth drilled or they're having a heart surgery, they want to be unconscious. And even on a more modest level, every night, when we're really dog tired after you moved all your furniture there, you <laughs> want to be unconscious. So you mm. want to, you want nothing. You want to, you want a brief feeling of unconsciousness, right? Because you've learned not that because it's really nothing, because it isn't. You're not nothing. You're just not conscious for a while, and that, and you've learned by experience that when you wake up later, you're going to feel renewed and better, and you're ready to move some more furniture. Whereas you're really sick of it when you go to sleep. So what the thing is is they're not really scared of nothing. Well, it means that even the materialist knows in their bones that everything in life is continuity and that they, everything is infinitely interconnected. You know, queer, motion, queer connection at a distance. They have this strange, uh, you know, the two molecules can be connected with their spin. You know, the physicists are all completely flipped out about it. But they know that everything is interconnected. So what they're scared of is not the nothing, if that really was the case, but what they're scared of is what might happen to them after the nothing, once they have no control, because they're unconscious. And so they, that means that even the materialist subliminally knows there will be continuation, because nobody has ever experienced nothing, actually. And you know when you're unconscious, or you might say, well, that's nothing because I'm unconscious. But do you know you've, you've been unconscious, you've slept maybe 10,000 nights and you kept waking up. So you weren't nothing, actually. And not only that, but some mysterious energy was around that renewed your cells and made you feel more energized in the morning, which, of course, we call the infinite plenum, the clear light of the void, the infinite energy of reality. And, and, and Buddha would call the nirvanic reality that you were sleeping in, where nirvana is not a null state. It's a state of infinite love and energy. Mm. You know, if you think of love as being wanting people to have what they need, you know, when you love someone, you want them to have what makes them happy and what they need. Right. So in that sense, we're not making it a person. We're saying that the clear light of the void is, is available for anything that feels depleted of energy any person or thing to draw energy from it. You know? yeah. And that's the deepest nature of reality. So that's why wisdom is bliss, which <laughs> discovers that experientially, yeah. ultimately, but knows it ahead of time inferentially, because inference gives you a kind of experience, although indirect. So we mustn't negate that experience that you get from valid inference. You know? And I like what you say here in terms of the example of letting go into sleep. Not nothingness, That's and it. but the way that and, and again for me uh, mindfulness really uh, is is the perspective here. Uh, as you say, it strengthens your trust in reality, yeah. beginning to sense the nature of freedom of space-like emptiness. That's and, it. Uh, That's yeah. it. From one uh, might think, you know, in the in the in the in the bhakti world of Ramdas. One might think, okay, I'm going unconscious and it's like I'm going to 
the curtain of darkness descends and I become unconscious. But I will project the notion in my mind that the infinite love of the universe is Lord Krishna, is his wonderful friend Hanuman, is his beloved Radha, and that I will really be lying in the lap of these wonderful beings who will be loving me in the sense of renewing my energy while I'm, while I'm just their, their, their beneficiary. Because, mm. And I'm not like, I'm just wide open because I'm unconscious. So I'm not somehow blocking any kind of good energy seeping into me from them. And, and in Buddhism, we think of Tara, you know, the goddess Tara, or the, you know, the Dakini, the Vajra Dakini, you know, the clear light of the void represented as a great mother, you know, and, uh, and we, we, we think of that. So I'm in, I'm in mother's lap, in, in mother freedom's, uh, you know, soft and energizing lap. Mm. I think that um, one other major tenet here uh, in this book, although... Uh, you've gone into it before, uh, maybe even much more detail, and that's around the concept of emptiness, yes. which is a sore point for many people who yes. equate it uh, with nothingness yes, and uh, nihilism mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. all of that. So I think it's mm -hmm. worthwhile for everybody to mm -hmm. hear from you. I, I actually, uh, I may be wrong, so you'll correct me, but... I think that one time you referred to emptiness. This is the uh, definition you gave, the womb of bliss. That's right. That's right. Oh, it's a womb of love. <laughs> well, because bliss is the, actually the, the particular phrase I think I'm fond of is shunyata karuna karbam, which is emptiness, the womb of compassion. But mm. the energy of compassion, of course, is bliss in the sense that um, compassion springs from empathy where the enlightened being feels the feeling of the suffering other but what actually gets radiated toward that being then is not the fact of sharing the suffering it but but is sending the bliss you know of of like overflowing with the bliss so you know the person who feels compassion is empathy by itself, just joining the other person in the suffering doesn't really help them alleviate their suffering. Whereas compassion cannot tolerate that they suffer. Mm -hmm. So therefore it wants them to find bliss. And of course, it would, that would be an absolutely in, in exhausting and impossible thing if it wasn't that. The enlightened being is motivated by the energy of inexhaustible bliss, you know? And I think, for example, Saint Ramdas, Saint Richard, Saint Albert, you know, to me, he's our great American Hindu saint, you know, uh, and and uh, and he was able to keep a broken body and brain and nervous system long past the time when he normally would have liked to embrace the larger life energy that you do in the death rebirth transition, because the death rebirth transition is not going into a null state. It is surrendering and wide open and discovering that the, what reality is, is this vast life energy that is almost too big for any particular embodiment. 
So it's actually an increase in life force rather than a decrease is what, you know, what the book of Tibetan Book of the Dead beautifully and scientifically mm -hmm. elaborates. But that's just in, saying it impressionistically. So he, he, he withheld that joy from himself, which he always used to talk about when I want to go and be with the one, he says, get out of my movie, you know, and mm -hmm. be with the one. He had all these ways of talking about it. But the point is, it was because he was channeling as a medium the bliss from the one extending out to everywhere and, and you know, from the infinite, actually, extending out to everywhere, that he was able, that bliss was able to keep his own broken body going well enough to remain conscious of relating to all his friends who he loved. And he wanted to share that with them. He wanted to teach that with them, and which he did, I think, so fabulously. Yeah, really and people do. he had no idea, never met before. That was the beauty of of him. That I he know. had gotten and, uh, to this, people, the real place of Maharaji Ramdas. Love everyone and tell the truth. That's right. And 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 many people may have thought he was just clinging to life because he was scared to die, which is totally not true. I'm sure he totally knew the vastness of letting completely go. When, when you, like your guy went in Samadhi, your mother was worried because he yeah. didn't even bother to breathe because he did because he was so open. Every pore, the oxygen was everywhere in him without having to pump it out and suck it out and like put it through the mechanism. He was just wide open, every fiber. So his, his Samadhi attainment apparently was like that. Yeah. And then there is maybe an imperceptible, you know, circulation of some something, but, but actually the, the highest state, there's no need to breathe, actually. Yeah, and you know yeah. some of those some of those great yogis and lamas who who uh, show that sometimes when they die and actually do die clinically, as far as people think, in that their brain flatlines if they have an fMRI on them, and the heart is not beating, there's no pulse, and yet they don't collapse, they sit up straight, they don't smell, their cells do not deteriorate, and they can stay what's called sitting in clear light, is what they call it in. Mm in Tibetan, and Indian, many Indian masters and yogis did that, but they only do that to kind, of, to kind of just create a sense of motivation in the disciple to see that there's some, right. there's a deeper energy in the universe than just whatever they are, think they are constantly fabricating in their small body, you know, yeah. although that and is also precious. But point is, it's, that it's itself draws from a larger life force because the ultimate reality of the, uh, uh, of the universe is life force. Mm. It's not dark space. It's not nothing. It's life right. force reaching across it all. And when we refer to emptiness, we're referring to empty of the self-motivation, yes. of oh, yeah. the self-interest. Oh, yeah. uh, yes. That's and, simple. That's well, easy to well, understand. No? Yeah, well, not relative self-interest is actually okay. You have to be practical. But absolute mm -hmm. self-interest is the thing. The absolutizing of self. And actually, in the book, I translate it in many contexts as freedom, which is actually also what it is. Because... What, it, what emptiness is, is a kind of pure negation, but it's a negation that negates itself. So, for example, in pure freedom, you're also free of freedom, meaning you're not stuck in being separate from committing to relationship or being, you know, connecting to things. That, because you're free to make a choice to do so. Because that's what, so freedom is not bind you into, imprison you in freedom as, as, if, as mm. a dualistic mm. idea of the final reality. And so, you know, we say, we don't think of freedom like that. We think of it as a positive, you know, like George Bush, you know, oh, they hate our freedom. <laughs> but actually, free is a negation also. 
which is salt-free, sugar-free, trouble-free, mm. right? That means <laughs> lacking those things. So we could say sugar empty, empty of sugar, empty of this. It, it's a meaning like that. Whereas nothing it tries to clamp a, a positive identification on that which is not there. You see, whereas emptiness is there, which is the freedom of all the relative things mm, to relate to right, each other. Right. So in a way, what the theory of emptiness, what Buddha's great discovery, which is a scientific discovery of emptiness by shattering all the atoms like a quantum person in thought experiment combined with samadhi, where he actually saw the fact that there is no indivisible particle or subparticle or subatomic particle. He actually experienced that and burst into the space of freedom, but then burst past a space of freedom being by being free of the freedom and compassionately interconnecting again with all life, mm. if you follow me, and not adopting a dualistic idea of some sort of space beyond that is uh, itself. Yeah, because in fact, that's irrational because if there is a space beyond the relative world, there's a boundary between it and the relative world, and it's not the absolute. It's only a relative space of mm -hmm. sort of a moment of separation, but it connects because you entered it. So then you will exit it inevitably. Right. And right. the point is, by exiting it, exiting it right away and bringing it with you, then you have the freedom in your relationship. And that's the enlightened being, you know. And yeah. for example, Ramdas had the freedom to stay a decade, maybe I don't know how long. Past, past I mean, his, they uh, said you know it was twenty three years in the date. end. I the, mean, they, the, the Richard Albert body's sell by date was like had more than a decade the, before. Yeah, but he stayed more. to be able to celebrate the, that even the stroke was the blessing of his guru. Yeah, and that came from Brahma and Hanuman, and that came from reality finally. It doesn't come from some like exotic weird thing brewed up in a temple someplace. It was it, it's reality. You know, the Guruji was himself wrapping in his blanket. But he was there in his blanket, but he was sitting in reality, which is where Buddha sits and where Ramdas was sitting, because the enlightened person doesn't think reality is apart from holding up the weeping babe and giving it the bottle if you don't have a nipple. <laughs> you know, uh, we don't have much time left, but we we absolutely there's a couple of things that I cannot pass by that caught me when I uh, read through uh, the book, and uh, and this one's around realistic speech. That chapter in particular, oh yes, right. And, uh, that is so. Uh, when you start to when you talked about the way you think and the reality of what you are doing by just never mind going and telling somebody off when you're you know they cut you off in a car you mm <laughs> never mind that which is so obvious you're creating stuff but the thoughts and i yeah. i cuz it hit me because i was just i was having some mindful awareness of 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 thoughts that i was having you know, they were like the judgment of one kind or another or anger yes. at something that isn't going my way. And <laughs> and these thoughts are absolutely critical uh, as I read through and you're... Yeah, sure. Yeah, right? Speech. That's absolutely right. That's it. So, you know, 
whatever, and, and everyone shouldn't think also that wisdom means that they have to be Buddha before they can have fun. Because anytime we open the mind, we, that's wisdom. You know? Anytime we let go of some self-righteous, I'm it, and this is right, I'm right, and all that, then anytime we listen to our partners, we kind of go for the smile instead of the sort of imposed whatever we're trying to do. That shows, that is wisdom. You know, wisdom is really intelligence, you know, connected with connectedness, you know, relativity, you know. So Buddha, as a scientist, discovering theory of relativity, bring it into ethics and learning and into daily life and daily mindfulness. It's really wonderful. It really is. But just and, that the, the fact that one... Um, has the motivation just simply to use mindfulness as a way Absolutely. to transform. Uh, just uh, as you say, you don't have to be a Buddha. You, you can right. enjoy along the path by That's virtue right. of connecting with, with uh, true intention and, right. and motivation. Right, right. And, yeah. and uh, mindfulness really is where that critical mind comes. And, you know, like I always think about, you know, Eckhart Tolle, who I like a lot, mm. and who lives not far from here. I think he's in Santa Barbara nowadays. And he, that thing about the now thing, but his own discovery of it, when he was trying to, when his narrative, his own inner narrative, was telling him he should do himself in because life sucked so bad. He didn't know the friendly fun fact that, well, of course it sucks when you're not living it right. And you can fix that. And you can have a mm. great time. But anyway, he was just listening to the to that. He wasn't thinking of it as a fun fact. He was just telling himself it, it was an absolute case and he should therefore absolutely wreck his, destroy, kill himself. And then another voice rose in his mind that he realized was also his, which was a practice of mindfulness. He found a deeper, more intuitive voice in his own mind saying, why are you listening to that narrative to that voice of yours, that depressed voice of yours, who, who told you that was correct and was authoritative? Who made you obey it and so that you're now about to do yourself and eat the bottle of sleeping pills or whatever he was going to do? And that he then listened to the new voice. So he had the freedom to make a choice between voices. And he took the life-affirming voice and saved his life. Mm. So mindfulness, the freedom, finding that freedom in his mind not to only think that the one voice in his mind, which was saying, I must be pissed off about myself and destroy myself. And he heard another one saying, why should I listen to that? That was a movement of freedom in his mind, a movement of wisdom in his mind. And you could call it mindfulness or wisdom, it doesn't matter. But that saved his life, actually. Yeah. So that's really, and he tells that honestly and fearlessly, that story. And his whole great teaching for millions of people rose from that. And uh, that's a, that's a gift of freedom, yeah. A gift of emptiness, because <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. he thought otherwise. It, that head voice was telling him to destroy himself wasn't empty because it was the absolute his voice had to obey it. And 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 mindfulness is therefore an exercise in freedom, actually, yeah. in learning how to how to live it and use it, and be the free Raghu and the free Bob <laughs> and the free Eckhart, you no, know? uh, and the free Ramdas. Yeah. I love it really. It's so nice talking to you. Yeah, Raghu, so I must great. get out that that Ohi one of these. Yeah, days. well, we got to get through a little a bit more. Um, let's just w last thing. 
yes. which is around the importance of a teacher. And I, yes. I mean, you know our relationship with Neem Karoli Baba. We know your relationship with Geshe. And, uh, yes, uh, and his there, holiness. There, and, mm-hmm. his, and of course his holiness. Uh, but uh, I guess, I don't know. Are we put more a little bit as, as our tradition of bhakti yoga, of, of uh, Guru Kripa and all of that, um, we put that in a, uh, the container that we have and, and the thing that makes me happy about it, and you experienced it yourself in, uh, in Maui at these retreats where we have this real combination of us, Krishnas and Ramdas right, right, and, right. and others, and then on the other side is you and Roshi Halifax and Jack Cornfield and, and so and uh, I don't Sharon. think of myself on their side. No, you're on their side. We want you on their side. This is much with you guys. No, yeah, no, I know that. I I, they are too. They are too. Right. And, but Good. the reality is that blend of, yes. of that heart and, and then the discrimination aspect that right. Neem Karoli Baba had us uh, from the very get-go. He had us, without telling us to do anything, we all learned Vipassana meditation. We were all hanging out with Tibetans, you know, look at Danny right, Goldman right. and his relationship with His Holiness as well. And I was fortunate to, to be with a number of, of different groups yes. of great Tibetan teachers. So the, that blend, which does still emphasize the reality of the teacher in sure. this case, um, is uh, but there's also you know on the other side just to, to express what you expressed earlier in the book, which is that the Buddha is about and as His Holiness says, and you know he's I, I heard him talking about some of the uh, problems that had gone on with Buddhist teachers and um, oh, you know, sexual malfeasance and so on, and he would yeah. say, do do not take uh, anything. On uh, on the word of a teacher, without you directly experiencing it inside, right? Yeah. Words of wisdom, right. and at at the same time, there's another level for me by which I wouldn't understand this freedom that you just talked about without being in that particular presence. Of course, but this is the key of the good. It's the difference between the good teacher and the bad teacher. Mm. There are less good teachers. And the good teacher is the one who wants the student to develop themselves independently to equal or even surpass the teacher. The good, bad teacher wants the student to only be dependent on the teacher. Mm. And then when the good, the good teacher wants the student to surpass the teacher, be just as free and just as blissful. And then, of course, that person will be grateful to that teacher. So there will still be tremendous gratitude and respect. But but the good teacher does not want just to pick up on a new dependent. Mm, They want want the the reliance on the teacher is very well articulated in Indian thought and both sides of both so-called both sides, Buddhist and Hindu sides, which are really not two sides. They are one Indian yeah. classical culture. Right. It only became different when the Buddhist one was driven out by invaders who didn't like the idea of the freedom. They didn't want the Indian people to be free. They wanted them to be subservient. Right. You know, they're conquerors in India who came to India uh, 1,800 years ago. And so, but in classical India, what was unique about it was the teacher wanted the student to become his or her equal and even go and carry the teacher's vision even further. 
And that, and then the student, when they did the good one, became so grateful to the teacher that they certainly connected back to the lineage. But the bad one just wants to manipulate people to be dependent on them so they can manipulate and use them like servants. And then the, eventually the student rebels and it doesn't like them. And they, and unfortunately, one of the really bad things is then the student rejects the original teaching mm. that they liked, mm. that the bad teacher did transmit some of and before they started manipulating and abusing. Mm. And so then, this, unfortunately, the students sometimes will throw out the whole goodness of the teaching and miss out on what they learned that helped them mm. before they got abused. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so there's a tricky thing about it, but I think it has to do with coming, for example, in the initiatory level of it, there is a thing in the tantras, either Shaivite or Buddhist, where you say that you don't really get initiated unless you perceive the teacher as indivisible from the reality of the deity, you know, or, or you know, the nirvana or the ultimate or whatever you want to call it, you know, Satchidananda. Mm. And uh, so that's the excuse that the bad teacher uses to say, well, we had that ritual and you had to see me as Vajrasattva or something. And so now you have to do what I tell you and whatever mm. it is, I want a, a Cadillac. I don't want some spokesman, you know, this kind of thing. <laughs> and that's completely mistaken because the reason that in initiatory thing, you see the teacher as indivisible from his teaching. It's like you look at a statue of the Buddha, a statue of Hanuman, and you think of the reality of Hanuman. And it was a, the more deep your bhakti is when you feel practically it is in the statue. But you never make a mistake of thinking the statue is Hanuman. You don't make, you know, Hindus and Buddhists are not idolaters in the sense of they don't think the statue is the ultimate reality. They think the statue is simply a channel, a medium to, to, to the presence. Of, and they do have, they have rituals about statues where they say, this may this be a channel for Hanuman to come through yeah. it. But yeah. nobody makes that mistake. So similarly, the guru is a channel of that, but, the, but the, the goal is where the student themselves feels one with Hanuman. They themselves feel one with Rama. They themselves feel one with Buddha. And then they try to represent that to the others mm -hmm. and be truly mm -hmm. loving and truly helpful and mm -hmm. truly beautiful and whatever it is. Which is you know? what Ramdas was so, so, so successful you, at, right? Ramdas. You, you use the ritual event as an excuse to domineer people, mm. Mm. then you're right. missing the whole thing of right. Indian spirituality and Indic science, which is that everybody can be one with the ultimate. And that's what the Indian gods want. They don't just want a slave. Mm. They want someone to be one with them, you know. Mm. Uh, that's, that's, that's the greatness of Indian science. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's, I was just saying, interjecting just before about Ramdas, that's what he became. He yes. imbued what, uh, that yes. he called it the jewel of Neem Karoli Baba, came back to the West, wrote Be Here Now, which is, by the way, Bob, 50th anniversary is this year. I know, celebrating there's a new great it. thing yeah. by you yeah. guys put out, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so we're, we're loving that new book. We've been reading it a lot. Oh, that's great. And so uh, in that sense, it's exactly what you just said, which is, the student or the disciple or the would a devotee in this case yes. imbues this and then shares that in a way that's non-differentiated from the source 
And Absolutely. everyone has a chance. And we have seen this over these decades yes. of how that has manifested. And you've seen it when you come to the retreat. You see all these people yes. and being there. I and see that. it all. Listen, I do. I, I totally into it. It's yeah. all amazing. Yeah, it's all it's amazing. It's all amazing. Thanks for writing this book, though. I, well, I, I appreciate you. it because it's got... people know about it. Yeah, and it's... Uh, I hope a lot of people enjoy reading it and it makes them happy. And anybody who's practicing anything, if it's making them miserable, it couldn't quite be right, is what yeah, I'm saying. Right, Whether exactly. they call it Buddhism, whether they call it Hinduism, whether they call it Judaism, whether they call it whatever it is, they, the, the, the great spiritual leaders of humanity all wanted everyone to be happy. None of them wanted to be exploited by the emperor of Rome or the emperor of anywhere. Mm. To be made, to be resigned to being more miserable. Our, so our legacy. That's my point. That's uh, yeah. my point. Our legacy <laughs> is not to become miserable schleppers. Is not that's, our legacy. That's right? it. That's it. <laughs> and that's what and that's this the book only pronounces. way. That's the only way we're going to have this love revolution, mm. this devotional bhakti love, whatever you call it, bodhisattva vow revolution, mm. to change the bad guys from wrecking our planet. This beautiful yeah. planet that Buddha loved, Krishna loved, Varaji loved, and uh, Ramdas loved, but beautiful Maui. They're not. We're not going to let them do it. But we won't do that if we, if we're not happy. If we just get angry, then they'll use yeah. that as an excuse to continue to be militaristic and nasty, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. and uh, burn more oil and throw more coal <laughs> on it. You know? yeah, right. <laughs> So great right. to see so you. All the best. So Thank you, you great. And, uh, everybody, by the way, it'll all be linked up on the show notes where you can uh, order. The book is available now, right, Bob? Yeah. So, yes. Yeah. Okay. So, Wisdom yeah. is Bliss for friendly Wisdom fun facts that can change your life. Hey, house, wherever you buy books, you should find it. There all you right? go. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, you. All Thank the you best. Bob. Thank you, Raghu. I love it. Thank love you, Ramdas, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> we'll all be more happy. Take care. Okay, bye.